Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Alvin Berger. He is CEO at Skiadonics. We're going to talk to him a little bit about what do we know about cannabis and the cannabis industry? Where are we in relative to some of the science and really kind of understanding, you know, how these products work? What are the modes of action? What do we really know about them? What do we not know about them? I think most people that have been listening to this podcast, we've covered various aspects of this, but certainly, you know, good, solid scientific research is something that's still lacking at some level in the industry. And as we uh, mature and develop, it's going to become more and more important, not only that we know kind of what we're doing, but really how it's impacting people, like what are the effects, both positive and otherwise, and, and how do we really create products that are going to be helpful to, to people and, and the things they're trying to address and using cannabis products. So with that, Alvin, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Yeah, well, it's exciting to have you on. Let's talk a little bit about background. So give us a sense of your kind of original professional background and then how you got into cannabis. What's kind of your entry into the industry here? Yeah, good question. So I'm a, I have a PhD in nutrition with a specialty and lipids and uh, cannabinoids being a class of lipids Mm -hmm. and I was working for Nestle the chocolate company giant food company in Switzerland between 1996 and 2002 
And there was a paper that appeared in the journal Nature in 1996 uh, saying that chocolate was rewarding because it contained endocannabinoids. Uh, and I think your audience knows those are the cannabinoids formed in the body. Mm-hmm. And the uh, companies like Nestle, if they could figure out what makes chocolate rewarding and so people would crave it, that's a big thing to them from a business point of view. So the task came to me to try to dig into this deeper as a lipid biochemist. And one of the main endocannabinoids is a molecule known as N-arachidinoyl ethanolamine, also known as anandamide. And you notice within that name, I, I said the compound arachidonic acid, mm-hmm. which is found in mammals, meats, but not in plants. So right okay. away, we have a small problem here. How could the molecule in arachidinoyl ethanolamine containing uh-huh. arachidonic acid be the rewarding compound in chocolate? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, so meaning, meaning how do you get an animal-based molecule out of a chocolate, which is obviously a plant-based product? Right, and keeping in mind nature and science are the two most prestigious scientific journals in the world. Yeah. So that, that speaks to who did you get to review this? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a person with my background. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I hooked up with um, Rafael Mishulam, uh, discoverer of THC, and also Vincenzo Di Marzo in Napoli, in Italy. And we looked at this together and found that, that indeed there are plant-based cannabinoids in chocolate, which may have something to do with rewarding properties, but it just wasn't the molecule that was written up in the Nature paper. And then I went on to publish many other articles, book chapters, and so on. But that was my entryway. Got it. So really, really, it wasn't cannabis that you were originally looking at. It was chocolate. I guess, when did cannabis come out? When did you realize that you were what you were learning here could also be applied to the cannabis field? Well, we um, started with the chocolate, but then it led to, while still at Nestle, to other questions more about the cannabinoid-like molecules that would be in other foods. So we started looking at posing questions like how much of these cannabinoids were in milks, breast milks, bovine milks, uh, soybeans. And so now that was entering the the space of more uh, phytocannabinoids. Got it. Meaning that these were plant-derived cannabinoids that were showing up in lots of different plants, not just cannabis. Yes, exactly. So as you sort of gained this knowledge, I mean, give us a little bit of the story of how this have got you involved in the cannabis space or, or where has this kind of landed in the cannabis space and how, how has it been important to the cannabis industry? So I had these initial publications and I, you know, throughout my career, I've always made these early discoveries and then they just kind of sit idle. It's almost like it's a little ahead of its time. People don't mm-hmm. quite get it. You know, we had patents, we had the papers, and and then I, you know, going some five years ago, I realized, well, I'm sitting on, you know, all this knowledge, and uh, I'm not really contributing much to the field right now. So I started kind of re-engaging myself, serving on boards, doing podcasts, writing more kind of lay-style articles, technical articles, but trying, making a deliberate effort to stay away from the uh, technical journals and focusing more on magazines that consumers and businesses would see. So I had a different focus now. It was really to help businesses serving. I really like to help companies with pipeline development, thinking out of the box. Um, and so that's how I've kind of re reimmersed myself in this field. And give us some interesting kind of applications, th- things that you've been working on or, or areas that you've been applying some of this knowledge. Well, one, one of the things was I have a, another company called LifeSense Products that manufactures MCT oils. 
Mm-hmm. And we were developing these or selling these products for the ketogenic effects, mainly for weight management, uh, cognition, and energy. But yep. we started getting all these orders coming in, large orders. And I finally started reaching out and saying, well, you, you know, because we, we were selling to consumers, but all of a sudden now people are buying 25 bottles, 50 bottles. So I started reaching out and they said, oh, yeah, we're using your MCT oil to solubilize CBDs. Interesting. And I think, you know, you know that MCTs are one of the common ways to solubilize CBDs. But our, ours is a particular type called C8 MCT. So okay. three molecules of octanoic acid hooked to glycerol. And that one, based at least on anecdotal evidence, seems to be the best one to solubilize MCTs. And so that kind of got me interested in uh, bioavailability and solubility, which is a you know an issue for most nutraceuticals. And with that as a background, I then wrote a like a two or three page article that was published in a magazine looking at the bioavailability of CBDs. And when you say bioavailability, what what does this mean, or what what are we talking about? Yeah, good question. So the you know people should probably you know have an understanding. What is the difference between absorption and bioavailability? Yeah. So absorption in a you know not in a super technical sense is referring to the amount of a substance that makes its way into the body. Okay. In other words, not excreted in the stool. But bioavailability is more specific. It, it refers to the amount of an active substance that's taken up by a tissue that needs it. Got it. So availability just means it, it, it's in your body, but it doesn't necessarily be used by the tissues. Bioavailability is, is actually is absorbed into the tissue and serves some kind of function or is processed somehow by the cell itself. Correct. Yeah. And why, why is there a difference there? I mean, what's, what, are the, what are the factors that go into these two kind of uh, parts of the process? Well, if you, were, if you were developing a CBD or cannabinoid-like molecule and, you were, and your end game was to look at, say, stress or brain fog or some such thing, the logical mm-hmm. question would be to, you know, the logical question to pose would be how much actually gets up to the brain where it's needed. Yeah, and so you know, okay, not so easy to go cutting up human brains, but <laughs> but but you know, you, you can look at animal models, or there are pet tomography type imaging techniques that you could actually see the amount of material that's taken up to the brain. So you somehow mark the molecule so that when it goes to the body, you can actually see it on one of these imaging techniques. Y- yes, correct. Got it. Yeah. And so, so, so knowing how much got into the body and then how much got into the tissue, why, like I guess, what is in the way of molecules actually getting absorbed and then actually getting into the tissues? Well, a lot of these substances like CBDs, they're, they're not highly soluble in water. They're not highly soluble in oils. So they require coaxing meaning the use of surfactants, emulsifiers, self-emulsifying drug formulations, so-called SEDs, nano-SEDs. So mm-hmm. if you look at like CBDs, it's said that only 13 to 19%, let's just call it 20%, is actually soluble in uh, aqueous solutions. Or that, and that, well, that's actually the bioavailability. So that means if you don't pay attention to this, 80% of what you're administering might not even be doing anything. I mean, you're just passing it. <laughs> you're basically yeah, yeah, passing you're just, it through your stool. Right, you're just passing it. So um, when I look at, you know, when you and I first chatted, I said there's there seems to be too many scoos for me. You know, you look at these companies with like five different doses, not ready for that level of uh, differentiation. But, you know, when I see all those doses, the first thing I say is, well, 
I don't even know how much of that stuff is bioavailable. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, what have we learned about this? Like, what, what do we know now at this point in kind of the research and the science in terms of what actually promotes absorption and bioavailability and what hinders it? And, and what are the, I guess, what's the limits of our knowledge around some of these things right now? Well, the, there's more and more research looking at the MCT oils as a solubilizing agent, and that increases the bioavailability quite a bit. And so that's definitely commonly used in the industry right now. Mm-hmm. And then the the new state of the art, which is just coming out right now, are the self emulsifying drug delivery systems that I mentioned, SEDS. And that's still in the early games, but I, but I'm hearing from uh, companies that that you know that's the next breakthrough in getting these things solubilized. Um, I can tell you, you know, on, on a practical note, how big companies handle solubility questions. They'll yeah. go through the trouble to make a preparation. And then they'll, knowing where they're going to ship it, like if you're shipping to a cold climate or a warm climate, we'll do mock shipping exercises. So it's one thing to say something soluble sitting on your lab bench, but what's relevant is when the consumer gets it. So you want to do these mock shipping exercises where it's gone to, let's say, Minneapolis, where I am, real cold, and then back Mm -hmm. again, kind of a double insult experiment. And then you look at it again to say, well, is it still in solution? So you're actually looking at at how the product is changed by environmental conditions that happen through the supply chain and uh, manufacturing process. Yes. And what are you, I mean, I'm assuming this is like temperature and humidity. I mean, what, what ends up affecting the, you know, the, the f- efficacy, you know, from these processes? Well, a lot, of, a lot of it is temperature related. In terms of the stability, you know, a lot of molecules may be packaged under nitrogen gas to keep it oxidatively stable. But okay. then, you know, you have to ask practical questions. Is a consumer... Once they open it and the nitrogen's released, so now it's exposed to oxidation, in a practical sense, how long is it going to be stable before it starts degrading? So this is like my wine. When I, when I pump my wine out of, uh, you know, the air out of my wine bottle to try to get it to last a couple more days, the same thing? Yes, it's the same kind of thing. Interesting. So should I be, I guess, should I be uh, <laughs> pumping my, my CBD containers to evacuate them to reduce the chance that they're going to spoil? Well, the, the manufacturer, like, like for my other business where we sell these, you know, these uh, Delta 5 oils, we, we, our, our stability work will be based on the product after it's opened. So if it's a larger, credible company, there's two types of stability. There's the stability when it's in the protected environment, and then there's the stability once it gets to a consumer who then leaves it open. Yeah, and, 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 and so you're testing it for both of those situations. Yeah. Right. I, not necessarily open, but just not in, a, in that protected environment. The nitrogen yeah. gas has been released, and then you're just recapping it. So, I mean, do you, do you envision that you know, companies or brands will start developing, you know, packaging solutions that deal with this in different ways? Or, or is this just, you'll, we'll develop new products that are inherently more stable? There may be new packaging solutions. I've seen some of that in visiting companies. But I, I, I think a lot of it is just going to be companies that can show, like if I were going to buy a CBD right now, to the extent possible, I'd want to know about the stability, the shelf life storage conditions, I'd ask them about bioavailability, absorbability, the advantage of working with larger companies, they'll, they'll very likely have that kind of data. Whereas a mom and pop who yeah. may just be buying the ingredient from someone else, but then repackaging it, you don't really know what's going on. 
So how would a general consumer actually ask these questions or find out this information? I mean, they're not, uh, it seems like it seems tough to walk into a shop or walk into a store and, you know, asking the clerk, Hey, can you tell me about the bioavailability of this? I mean, what practically, how do consumers help find good, effective products? Well, if it's not stated in, on the website and in the company literature, you could try contacting them. And, and I mean, these companies have this, or I guess, how, what's your what's your experience and how many of the companies in the market actually have this information? I'm actually not sure because yeah. I haven't gone through that exercise. Yeah. Uh, but but generally speaking, I hate to sound you know biased, but lar- larger companies that have the budgets, you know, they, there's a greater chance that they've looked at this correctly. What and what do what do they need to do to get this information? I mean, is this they need to go get, get it tested? Is this? I mean, how do they find out? Well, in, in a, a lab setting, you're you're looking at sedimentation which is how much of the active is just settling out of the solution. Mm -hmm. And then there's various physical chemistry kind of techniques you use, uh, light scattering, microscopy, crystallization measurements, and a lot and things like that, that uh, someone with a food science background knows how to do to properly look at this. And so does this mean that these manufacturers, processes and manufacturers, you know, need to have these skills in-house or how are, I mean, I guess what, if I'm a processor or a manufacturer, what is it that I need to have in-house that's going to tell me, give give me this information so I can validate this for the market? You know, measurements like a turbidometer, you know, just measure, looking at turbidity. I mean, those are really simple, but you know, unless you're like at the level of a Nestle, you're not, it's not practical to think you're going to hire you know, a full-time hardcore uh, team to, to look at some of the more involved measurements. And that would just be outsourced if you wanted to go that way. Yeah. And so as we evolve as a industry, as a market here, what do you think are going to be the key factors or th- things that the industry is going to start focusing on as we evolve? Well, what in my thinking about what it takes to be a successful CBD company or phytocannabinoid company, consumers are really tired of hype. You know, everything's amazing, awesome, unbelievable, incredible, one of a kind. I mean, stay away from the hype language. Stick to the facts on the ground. That's one comment. A, a second, don't, you don't need to. You don't need to sell. You know, six different doses. I mean, the science isn't there yet. You know, offer a couple concentrations. That yeah. would be another suggestion I would have. To the extent possible, if you're making your own formulation. And you can do even a limited clinical trial. That's what people like me are looking for. You know, otherwise it's just speculation, you know, how it might help me or might not help me. Yeah. And what would, like when you say a limited trial, what would you be looking for in reviewing someone's data or what would constitute a, some level of validity in a trial that someone's run? Well, no, normally like a smaller company starts out with so-called pilot studies, you know, where they've looked at typically like six to 10 people. And it might not even be placebo controlled. It might just be, you know, before and after, you know, giving the, giving the, uh, the, the CBD and posing a very specific question. That's a pilot study. It's not usually, sometimes you can get it published in a lower tier journal, sometimes not. But that's the beginning. And then that gives you the confidence if you have a positive result, you know, to go put down 50K plus, you know, to do a proper placebo controlled double blinded clinical trial with you know 20 30 people per group yeah and i mean what what are the costs of doing these things i mean generally i mean what would, if a company is really thinking about you know doing this kind of work or doing this kind of research what would they need to budget or or put it well these little trials that i call pilot or marketing are an, anywhere between 5 to 20k depending on what you're looking at 
and, and these bigger trials, uh, in my own experience, I've spent on the low end a hundred and up to a million dollars. A lot of the cost gets into what you're actually going to measure. You know, the measurements are what gets expensive. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, I mean, I guess as what, what are the challenges of running these trials? Is it, is it the, the science recruiting, the um, keeping track of the data? I mean, why, like what, what is complex about doing this work? Well, I, I mean, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic, so it does <laughs> yeah. <kind of> complicate. <laughs> Besides the global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> it does complicate things at the moment, but, but when that passes, you know, I I tend to pay. I better pay more and work with a reputable uh, CRO contract research organization with lots of experience in clinical trial. And as well, if I were consulting for a company, I would find a CRO that's already done CBD work. You know, why why reinvent the wheel? I mean, they're if they're already familiar with you know the measurements and what to look for uh, and so on. That would be the direction I would take. Yeah, we're. Uh, I mean, so we we've, we've been talking, or, or kind of presumably we've been talking about these kind of core molecules, the THC, the CBD. As you look at these other kind of the other cannabinoids inside the cannabis plant, are there other things that you see, or other molecules that you see in there that are of interest, or have been um, you know talked about a lot within the industry at this point? Yeah, I'm starting to see. You know, the CBG is one. There's they hundred different cannabinoids in these plants. I'm, I'm just reviewing the, that science now as it emerges, uh, beta-caryophylline and so on. What I ask myself is, you know, wearing a scientific hat is when you promote a product and you say, oh, it contains CBG or beta-caryophylline, you know, the question someone like me is posing is, is, is that really adding a benefit or is that marketing hype? Because, yeah. the, you know, everybody is trying to show a point of differentiation, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can say, oh, look, mine has, you know, twice as much beta caryophylline, you know, to a consumer that might be, wow, cool. You know, that's the one I want. But, you know, wearing a scientific hat, I'm saying to myself, okay, well, does that really make it better? Have you proven it to be better? You know, are you asking for more money because you've, you know, done some manipulation? Yep. Yeah. And that seems to be you know, kind of the game right now is everyone's trying to find some some molecule or some angle to this to create a point of differentiation. But I guess it, from what I hear you saying, it's most times or infrequently, it's actually backed by any kind of either research or science or validity. Yeah. And related to that, you know, you see in this point of differentiation topic, you know, you see one company sells, you know, this is the formulation for sleep. This is the one for stress. This is the one for brain fog, mm-hmm. you know, and, they, and they and they may have like ten screws like that. And you know, again, as a, a scientist, I look at that and say, okay, well, do you have any clinicals on any of this? Uh, and most of the time, the answer is no. And they've taken the sleep one, and you know, they add a little melatonin to it, and the stress one, maybe they add you know some uh, adaptogenic herb to it. You know, so it's kind of pseudo sciency. Yeah, I mean, just meaning that there's, I mean, yes. Melatonin has been shown to help with sleep, you know, but it has nothing to do with the, I mean, it's, it's whether they're actually acting together in some unique way is, is unfounded. Yeah. Untested. Right. I mean, is this just the nature of the market right now or what, I mean, guess what's your, what's your, I mean, I see this, this, I see this, you know, I I spent so many years in the fish oil industry, so I, I'm I'm seeing tremendous parallels between these two, you know, first it was fish oil, then it's, you know, different sources, more concentrated, different forms. This one has extra, like, you know, a molecule called DPA, not EPA or DHA, but DPA. You know, again, <laughs> looking for a different molecule that was already present, but to try to call it out as a point of differentiation. 
And I guess, is this just uh, misleading or is this harmful? I don't think a lot of it is harmful. I, I just think it's the nature of marketing. You know, you, if you have 100 companies trying to sell the same thing, yeah. you know, and you're all trying to survive, you know, from my perspective, I would rather you sell one or two things and do it really well. Mm-hmm. You know, what we talked about earlier, the solubility, maybe some clinical data, that would get me fired up. But it's usually not the direction companies take. Rather, it's, you know, clever marketers sitting there and thinking up, you know, of pictures and what they can say and, you know, studying competition and, and, and trying to do one-upmanship on their competition. Well, because it's easier and it's cheaper. Yes, exactly. <laughs> doing, the, doing the research is so yeah, exactly. it's hard and you it's costly. Hire a good marketer and in a week he'll have clever ideas. Yeah. He or yeah. She. Well, so how do you see this getting kind of cleaned up? I mean, is this going to be as as the industry evolves, as more professional companies come into this, is it going to change? Or what's the what's your kind of vision or, or guess on how this is going to play out? I mean, what I'm hearing from insiders is that as, the, as this matures, the larger companies are the ones that are going to be around. And the smaller companies, a lot of those are going to go away. And mm-hmm. the uh, what was explained to me is a lot of it's just going to be related to supply. So the people that that manufacture the you know the CBDs and phytocannabinoids and so on are just going to sell large amounts of it to large players. Got it. You know, just prohibiting little players from getting into this. They're just going to dominate the market and yeah. make it make it tougher for yeah. entrance. I guess you know you mentioned a couple of industries you've been involved in. Where do you see similarities and where do you see differences with you know the cannabis market relative to some of these other things like you know the fish oil and other nutraceuticals? Mm-hmm. Well, the, C- the CBD cannabinoid, in my estimation, has a one of the toughest regulatory environments. Yeah, you know, like take something like okay, we could argue you know marijuana was being used you know in ancient biblical times in Israel and yeah. so on. But that doesn't really count for regulatory safety. So if you look at, you know, like comparing it to the fish oil we just spoke about, yeah, the similarities, yeah. you know, you're all trying to find these points of differentiation. But CBD, it has a tough regu- regulatory hurdles. And I, I think small companies, large companies, you, you need to have dedicated regulatory staff. I mean, you can't, uh, for a large company, have an internal regulatory staff and a small company should at the very least have a reputable outside firm they work with. Because unless you want to turn that into your full-time job, I mean, it, this stuff is changing like daily, weekly. Yeah. And you, you so getting into the regulatory side, I mean, what, what do you think is working in terms of the regulatory side and, and what's not as you just kind of look at how the regulatory structure has been set up, either in terms of the structure or in its implementation? Where do you see, I guess, yeah, where, where do you see it working and where do you think it's it's falling short? Yeah, I mean, I... I'm not so sure on the regulatory aspect only only because it, it's fatiguing to me. You know, I, I, I read the same articles you probably do, and it's like every every day or week seems to be something different. So I, I tend to defer that to other people. The from what I'm hearing, you know, the FDA says that what they're really lacking is long term safety data. That seems to be lacking, and uh, yeah. and as well, I could I could add just from my own read of things, the the clinical advocacy is people say all kind of things, but the data is not there. I mean, so there was, you know, with the pushback of uh, CBDs orally, a lot of companies moved it topically. And, you know, so I started going through that literature and a lot of it is based on speculations or cell models, but there's very few actual just real studies in human subjects. And what would it take to actually make that happen? I mean, is this an industry thing? Is this a government thing? Who would drive this? Well, if, if you're if you're in industry... You, you, you either fund it yourself or you start getting trying to get these uh, SBIR, these uh, grants from the U.S. government to help fund some of that research. 
And that on the academic side, these universities need to start getting grants in to actually do the work, like using skin as an example. Yeah. Um, and, and with the change in uh, presidency, you know, there may be more funding available for, for good science. How long do you think it's going to take to actually get that happen? How long do these trials take? Is this a, uh, takes a year, it takes five years, it takes 10 years? I think uh, two to three years, we should start seeing, you know, more serious science coming out. I'm looking at speaking to the skin area right now in particular. What, mm -hmm. what I see on both the oral and the skin side is the data that's most convincing tends to be more on the overt disease side of things. You know, so yeah. it might be psoriasis for skin. Uh, it might be, you know, a significant angiolytic disorder, epilepsy, and so on. I mean, that seems from my read of things to be where the more convincing science is. And that's usually the direction, you know, that you see in a new field because it's easier to see the endpoints when someone has a significant problem, you know, whereas it's harder when it's, you know, something more, less significant clinically. Yeah. And so what work are you doing? What kind of companies are you, you working with and, and how are you helping them? Give us a sense of the, um, your area of focus. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I joined the, uh, this cannabinoid medicine studies advisory board through Mace Publishing. To help them, they have an upcoming conference. They asked me to uh, host a session on cannabinoids and pain. So that's uh, one involvement that's uh, coming up January uh, 13th. Mm -hmm. And then I'm always happy to help companies on the science side. Yeah, uh, really just kind of understanding. That's, that's where I want to keep myself. I don't need, there's enough people helping with marketing and regulatory. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to get into that. Uh, stick to your own lane there. Yeah. I get it. Alvin, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? I think a sim simple email, if you could post it on the on your site, would be best. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that the link is there, the email is there. Encourage people to reach out. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Alvin. I appreciate it. This was really helpful and, and fun, and uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, great for me too. Thanks a lot, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.